Welcome to the Milk Bottle e-commerce show, brought to you by Milk Bottle Labs, Ireland's top-rated and officially accredited Shopify and Clavio e-commerce experts. Founder Keith Matthews interviews e-commerce professionals, app developers and entrepreneurs to share as much digital knowledge and e-commerce tips and tricks as possible. This podcast is kindly supported by our go-to e-commerce tools. Rewind.io, the leading backup solution for Shopify, BigCommerce, Trello and more. Let's just say it's the cheapest insurance policy you'll ever get for your Shopify store and all your valuable data. Simply go to rewind.io forward slash milk bottle to get your first month for free. Our go-to Shopify application to supercharge in-store pickup and local delivery on your Shopify store is Zapiet. It's fully customizable and scalable from one location to thousands. Backed by outstanding customer support, it's no wonder Zapiet is trusted by over 10,000 plus stores across 150 countries. Now over to your host, Keith Matthews. Hey folks, welcome back. I am delighted to welcome Nick de Sabado today. Nick is a designer and a writer from Chicago. I have been a fan and a follower of Nick for many, many years. He is the founder of Draft NU, which is a design consultancy for Shopify Plus stores. And Nick and myself often share thoughts inside a, uh, a Slack community, which is run by a mutual friend of ours, Kurt Elster, which is uh, very, very valuable to us both. Draft NU researches your customers and makes design decisions based on evidence. I have many times on this podcast discussed the fact that most business owners will make decisions based on prior experience or emotion, when in actual fact, it should be based on evidence and data. And by using evidence and data, Nick helps stores make more money by teaching them how to make informed design decisions. Draft focuses entirely on the creation of outsized economic value for clients and provides clarity, certainty and rationality in an industry that is known for providing very little of these. And we will certainly discuss that. But before we get to the lack of clarity within DTC, let's welcome Nick. Nick, how are you? Doing great. How are you? Happy to be here. Good, good. It is, uh, I'm, I'm delighted. I have read uh, your books. I have never had anybody on the podcast that I can say that too. So it's it's uh, <laughs> it's great, uh, great to hear from you. Look, I know exactly who you are, uh, but let the listeners give give them an insight into uh, who Nick is and where he's from. Yeah, so uh, that was a beautiful introduction. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm Nick DeSabato. I'm a designer and writer from the city of Chicago. I've run Draft for just over 10 years now, and I have 17 years of experience doing what I kind of define to be classical UX design in the tech industry. Came out of working in agencies, uh, wrote an influential book on the practice of interaction design called Cadence and Slang in 2009 to 2010, and uh, started Draft in 2012. We started running A-B tests for SaaS businesses for the first few years, and then we moved into e-commerce around 2015. And ever since, we've been researching customers to understand what they say and what they do, which are often two very different things, and use those to ground new design decisions and evidence that hopefully make the numbers go up in a way that's not gross. So it's a very different approach to what you would view as like a typical CRO consultancy. We're very heavy on A-B testing, and we're very heavy on de-risking business operations by making sure that you're you know, actually listening to your customers and responding to their very felt needs. Um, we've come to find that stores have 
very different sets of customers with very different sets of values and concerns. And so that's why our work tends to be bespoke to specific stores. Um, we really, really love it. I've, I love my job. I love coming in every morning and just listening to people and channeling that back to store owners. And um, we beat the A-B test win rate by about 4x as of press time, uh, industry-wide. So we'd like to think we're good at what we're doing. That's pretty much it. So Nick, when you say you talk to customers, is that email? Is it a phone call? Is it a physical visit? Explain how you do that. Yeah, so the primary way we do that is I'll email the past like three to six months of your customers that have shipped orders and not refunded, agreed to email marketing. And then we will schedule a Zoom call and I will get on the phone with them. And usually it's a video call. And I just ask them non-leading questions about their experience finding the store, buying from us, um, how the shopping experience went, and then ask if they have any suggestions for us. Um, And so most of that takes place on a Zoom call. But there are many research methods, right? There's stuff in addition to that. You can have usability tests where you give people a script of tasks that they should be fulfilling and they voice their inner monologue as they're going through it while a screen recorder runs. You can have surveys that run after the transaction um, that can come via email or as a pop-up on the thank you page. You can have deep dive surveys that you just send to everybody who bought an order for the past year. And you're finding different insights based on what the research method is, Right. In terms of what they're doing, you can run heat and scroll maps. You can do behavior recordings using software like Hotjar, something like that. You can go on Google Analytics and take a look at what their overall journey looks like and their traffic sources look like and their according conversion rates. Um, But it's all different ways of observing the same sort of things. And you get different insights from each one of these research methods. We have about eight that we use at Draft and... Um, we find that when you're doing all of it at once, you just get so much information that you didn't know because you don't know that you don't know your customer. And so leading people to that re- realization is a key thing for us as we kind of move into the beginning of the process. So does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And we will dig deeper into that. But before we go there, I'd like to, your first book was Cadence and Slang. I think it was the second book that I purchased, which I read, which was Value-Based Design. And it was, uh, at a minimum, it was enlightening, okay? But when I read it, I felt that very few business owners would get it, okay? Because if you look at Shopify, the Shopify Plus arena, and you look at the beautiful stores that are being built, you look at the kind of standardization of mobile over desktop and the journey where mobile is becoming first. And I heard you on on a recent podcast and you actually stated that in a few years' time, it'll probably be mobile only, okay? We won't go there right now. I'll talk to you about that in a while. But (laughs) value-based design... Can you explain in principle what that book is about? Because it's, it's well worth a read for any e-commerce store owner that's running a store where I believe, you know, their livelihood depends on it. Yeah, value-based design, um, I, I deliberately made it as a more like evergreen universal text, right? So what it does is advocates for, in a very broad sense, a return of the design practice to the first principles of serving commerce, right? You have applied art is like the original term of what design is. And so you're taking creativity and you're using it for creating business value. 
all right, well, what is business value? And then I go into a little bit of MBA 101. You increase profit by, you know, increasing revenue, reducing costs, reducing risk. And then I talk about what needs to happen to expand the design profession to more specifically focus on business value, at least as of 2019, when I released the book. And it advocates for measurement of what you're doing. So you can actually take a look after you've been finished. It's a, it advocates for experimentation. So in practice for us, that means A-B tests at draft, right? Um, and it means research, right? So those three pillars of value-based design, you can do design. You can make a comp, right? You can sketch something. You can throw something together in Figma. Never talk to customers. Never measure the impact. Never A-B test it. And you're practicing something approaching design. It might just be art, whatever, but it's not really what I'm trying to advocate for here, where it's understanding a customer, recognizing that a customer exists, and then trying to meet their needs and then trying to see if you got it right, right? And acting with a degree of humility around that. And this happens regardless of what industry we're in, right? It's not just... It's not just e-commerce that can benefit from this. It's software as a service businesses. It's tech startups. It's um, anybody who's thinking about a branding campaign for a physical store. Like you can take these ideas and adapt them based on your context. And so obviously I come from an e-commerce background. I had been in e-commerce for four years before I wrote VBD. And so there's a, there's a second book that's called Applied Value-Based Design that you give as a PDF when you buy it. And that goes into more detail around kind of optimization for e-commerce and stuff like that. And now I'm writing some zines and new books that are going to drill into answering how to practice value-based design specifically for an online store. So that's in progress. So would it be correct to say, Nick, that the percentage of business owners currently in D2C to adopt or to, to dig deep in, within those design principles is becoming smaller. Because if you look at DTC, which I would say is disconnected the word to describe it, where, you know, you mentioned A-B testing earlier on. And the first thing people will do is go into the Shopify store and see, can they get an A-B testing app that they can add onto a store for $9.99 a month? And then it's fantastic. Okay, so we're operating in a world where the, the direction of travel in terms of design is actually being defined by the mobile handset rather than historic design principles. I'm assuming you have a problem with that based on your experience with what I would call proper design. Yeah, yeah. I think that the the term design, it's almost been like watered down to the point where it has a different meaning for every person, right? So I'll talk about what I mean when I think about design. Um, I come from a background where the practice of user experience design and interaction design were founded in like the early 80s along with the personal computer and... Um, that involves originally kind of usability testing where you would shadow somebody as they would try and complete tasks and you tried to see where they screw it up, right? And that involved research, right? So it's been definitional to user experience design throughout. Uh, as it's evolved, it has still focused on research as a definitional part of the process in the rest of the tech industry, right? And I'm coming from the tech industry into e-commerce, where then people, when they think UX, what they mean is what I call interaction design, which is just the layout and behavior and, you know, 
what happens when you tap an element, what it all looks like, what on a wireframe level it looks like. That's important. I don't mean to devalue that. But I come to those insights around layout and behavior by looking at customers and looking at heat maps and looking at what's going on so that I can make sure I'm measuring twice and cutting once, right? And so um, I've had instances relatively recently where I'll talk with people and they'll be like, well, we want better UX on the store. I'm like, okay, great. How are you going to get to that? You know, like, are you going to just ask me to provide best practices or my expert opinion? Like, what, what is this going to be? And there ends up being this weird disconnect between what they're saying as UX design. And then when I have to back out and figure out UX design means for them, they're like, we don't want research. We don't need to know our customers better. I'm like, you kind of do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm like, how did you, how do you expect me to do my job right if I can't figure this out and, and come to that realization? And we've been making the case economically for research in the tech industry this is old hat. It's been like a 15-year argument. Research often gets cut from budgets, and then it results in projects that don't go well, and then you spend more money on research later and wish you had done it differently the first time, right? And uh, I can't lead people to that necessarily, but I do think it's it's becoming kind of a structural problem in the industry, and, and I spend some time kind of shedding light on it. On a handful of Twitter threads and email posts on my mailing list and stuff lately, it's just been like a kind of sword brandishing thing that I've been seeing, especially as people lead up to Black Friday. Like a lot of my clients, they would start researching in April, May for stuff that we'd be doing to improve in advance of Black Friday. And I mean, that's wild to think about, but that's it's slow, patient work. It takes time and and you need to make sure you're doing it right. Um so, yeah, I think that that sort of answers a lot of different sides of it. But when I think of design, I think of something that's grounded in the customer and in meeting the customer. And Amazon believes this. Other enterprise e-commerce companies absolutely believe this. They have UX departments devoted to research. Baymert Institute believes this. Um, we're not alone, right? But DTC hasn't gotten the memo on it yet. And they really need to if they're going to continue surviving. Well said. Just give us one second, Nick, and we'll just have a quick break to listen to our sponsors. Rewind.io is the leading data backup solution for your Shopify store. Did you know that there is no way of recovering lost data in Shopify? If your store is gaining traction, you may have multiple staff or third-party developers entering your store. Mistakes can happen and data can be easily deleted. Rewind.io puts you in control of your data, allowing you to restore anything accidentally lost from a single image to an entire store. It acts as a pretty cheap insurance policy for your Shopify account. At Milkbottle, we help clients reduce their business risk by installing Rewind in every single store before we make any changes. Get your first month for free by simply replying to your sign-up email. Nick, in listening to that explanation, it makes absolute perfect sense. But you say DTC hasn't heard it yet. But is DTC listening when a DTC brand can very, very quickly spin out a store off the shelf on Shopify without any element of design other than placing the photos in the areas where they should be? Like, yeah. uh, will, will DTC ever listen to traditional design principles when I do believe that you're absolutely correct? You don't invest at the start, you make the mistakes, and then you're just going to have to reinvest in the future. Will they ever listen? Um, I hope. <laughs> One hopes. Yeah. Um, but I think that you're bringing up a really interesting, broader question about, and, and I'm 
thinking of the larger arc of the tech industry in this. You think about, let's take a different example, personal websites, right? In the 90s, you had GeoCities, then you had some Facebook pages, and now you have like Wix and Squarespace. And ultimately, they're good enough. Nobody is giving you money on your Squarespace site, but they can understand who you are. It looks professional enough. It's easy for you to go and do. Shopify is that, but it's also, it's like Wix that takes your money. That's what people tend to perceive it as, right? Well, okay, if you do something and get to a decent enough baseline, people think, well, I have a good enough product. I have good enough branding. I don't necessarily need to invest in this. But they're missing an enormous strategic opportunity. And I say this because I see it every time somebody hires me. I end up making millions of dollars for them. And then they don't know what they could have done without us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. having that track record is something that I think is shifting consciousness around all of this. Design as a discipline will always be changing as a result of the increasing commodification of best practices. Because best practices, you could roll out a 2.0 theme right now and nail 80% of the best practices. That's amazing. Yes. That gives us so much headspace to think about the harder problems. Yeah. How are, what are you writing to your customers? How are you shipping the products? How are you handling customer service and returns? And then... Those are the questions that I find in a consultative basis answering for clients. How do you deal with loyalty and long-term uh, lifetime value? How do you deal with upsells, increasing AOV? Those are not going to be questions you answer easily by rolling out a Shopify theme or installing an app. Yeah. Full stop. They're the questions that involve human answers. And design will always be in a cat and mouse game where you're trying to find something that can be stamped out universally for everyone, like Wix or Shopify themes, and the messy human side of it. That is the essential tension. And I hope we understand that we're selling to people at scale. It's relationships yeah. with people at scale. Yeah. And that is fun and interesting to me. That's why I wake up in the morning, man. That's it. That's. I'm, I'm glad to see that you enjoy it so much. I, I, I enjoy it, but it's funny because you mentioned things like uh, lifetime value and uh, how you're going to ship your product. And these are things that first-time D2C entrepreneurs never think about. And in building a store, especially with Online Store 2, because I do believe that Shopify is becoming less of a self-build platform, as it evolves, because it's extremely complex. Um, we're yeah. upgrading quite a few customers from one to two, and it's easily 40 to 50% of, of, of effort. Um, you know, bringing meta fields into products, creating different product templates, collection templates. It's just time consuming. And it's not even that it's difficult. It just requires more questions from the client. And then you have mm -hmm. to explain to the client. Um, th the pieces of admin that you mentioned there, like shipping the product, loyalty, lifetime value, they're the things that no one thinks of. But look, I'm not going to start repeating myself. You've yeah. absolutely nailed it. But what you have done there is you've led into draft because although design UX is clearly what you're passionate about, the service that you provide in Draft is much more broader than that, right? So aside from the A-B testing, interviewing the customers, what's the next process? Do you document that then and then share it with the customer and advise on what changes they, sh they should make? Is that the sequence of events? Yeah, so um, probably if you're listening to this in your store and you're like, that, that person does research. We don't 
we don't ship research. Correct. You do not. Like all of the big reports I write up with customer insights, like they are filed confidentially and we do not post them as PDFs to the main store. Like, duh, right? Those get turned into synthesized design ideas where we're looking at what people are saying and we try and find a way to respond to it. I'll give a couple of examples in a moment. But basically, we have a giant Trello board that we use to prioritize our ideas. We have a structured process to figure out what's a one-off fix versus what's an experiment. And then we come up with profitable ways to you know, rank them and... As a result, we're kind of de-risking operations by giving everything a certain degree of fairness to the whole process. That's a very short answer. We have a whole way of doing it on our blog under prioritization and synthesis. Um, you can take a look at that, and it's a longer forty-five minute answer, right? So, but, but are you are you? Is there an element of responsibility if you assign a priority to a possible change, right? Well, then does that mean then that that's the most valuable change? Like, is priority associated with potential ROI for the client? Like, how do you prioritize, I suppose, would be my first question. Yeah, I mean, it has the most promise, right? So the three axes of prioritization are how hard is it to build, right? So if it's monstrously difficult, it might cost a lot in dev time. It might require a huge QA process. The next is how likely is it to actually move the needle for us? So if we're making a change on the bottom of the about page, it's probably not going to move the needle for us. If we're changing the homepage masthead, it probably is, right? If we're changing something in the buy box or something that affects shipping or bulk discounts, something like that. And then the third is a little bit fuzzier, and this is something where as a consultancy we come into play, how well does it align with the business's existing strategy, right? Is it something that, radically shifts the brand goals? Is it something that turns us into something we hate? Is it something that um, doesn't go like align with our values? Like, and does it not allow align with our like Q3, Q4 strategies, right? So I'm thinking often one of the things that I do is spend a lot of time educating customers and moving them from not really knowing how to use our product to becoming an expert. That's something that just happens as a result of the design process. And so if you do something that involves education, like it will rank high along that axis, for example. And we add those three things up and then rank. So it's not necessarily like, oh, that will definitely generate profit for yeah. us. It's more, that has the most promise. Yeah. We should follow that thread. It is worth us doing sometimes high risk, high reward ideas end up at the top of that queue. And that's fun. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Most promise. Very interesting. Very, very good way of describing a priority. So is there a type of customer that you work with? Is there a, a vertical that you enjoy? Does a customer have to be seven figures and you can add 10% or is there a profile for the type of client that would use your service? Yeah. So If you're a small client, you're making like sub seven figures, you can buy a teardown from us. I go at your store for 25 minutes knowing everything that I know about going at other stores. And you'll probably make that money back with the fixes pretty quickly, right? And it's a good way to get started. If you're making seven figures or more, um, usually it's a good sign that you're getting enough of an order volume to get statistically significant A-B tests. Like usually around 300, 400 orders a month is a good minimum. And depending on your AOV, fair enough, right? Um, so I say generally below like 2 million, you're probably getting a teardown or a roadmap from us, like, or you're just reading our books. There's no wrong answer. Right. Um, and then anything above that, you're probably going to be working with us. 
And is there an onus then of responsibility on you to deliver, right? Obviously, you're delivering. I mean, and this, this kind of is similar to what I suppose we do. When you focus, you're focusing on not a niche, but you're focusing on a very specific area. But some, you know, there's a responsibility for us for milk bottling with, within our regular customers that we not only offer value, but also offer a revenue uplift. But in your experience, has there been cases where you've tried really, really hard and in actual fact, the needle didn't move very much for, for various maybe other external reasons? Um, so the rule is if we don't make back our fees after margins, we fire ourselves. Okay. And, and so uh, usually that happens on like quarter four or five of working with us, right? And you get to diminishing returns at some point. And yeah. then we just start scratching our heads and we're like, well, we ran out of ideas. <laughs> you, you understand your customers now. It only took a year. Yeah. Go off. Yeah. The magic is inside of you now. Yeah. It has only happened on the first quarter once, and it was because uh, I was promised a lot of things on the client's end that didn't work out, and operationally, it was a bit of a disaster. But also, like that can happen. I mean, it has happened, clearly. So, um, But I don't want to keep taking your money not getting an impact. Yeah. I show up at work to get an impact. That's it. Yeah. Nick, in the intro, I mentioned outsize economic value. I love mm-hmm. I love that term. I'm going to take it. OK, can you explain to the audience what that refers to in terms of um, in terms of DTC brands? Well, what ends up happening, I'll, I'll cite the examples that I was going to talk about. So what we do is we want a home run test, right? Like we do a lot of small tests that move the needle by like four or five percent every time, right? In aggregate, you do that seven or eight times and all of a sudden you have a 1.5x higher conversion rate. Great. Lovely. Um, I also live for tests where we just double conversion rate overnight. And those tend to be deeper, more involved reworks. There was one where uh, I worked for a client where they sold these like little travel tokens that you could put on a keychain. It was really fun. And so you could show off all the places that you've been in the world. And I was interviewing customers that had traveled to like 100 countries. And they're like, you're just penalizing us for being awesome. And I'm like, correct. Let's figure out a way to do like tiered discounts because this is already a very high margin business. And I'm like, client name, can you... um, eat into your margins a little bit if the AOV goes up. And he models it and he's like, yes, we can absolutely do that. And so we'd move to a tiered pricing structure, which involved a lot of dev work. It was a very high risk move, but it was supported very strongly by the research. Conversion rate went up by 2.5x and they hired six more people overnight. And now they're expanding into a new line of business. Wow. Outsize economic value, right? Okay. And was it obvious to you at the time that that exponential kind of increase could have occurred? No, I ran the A-B test. You're going to love this. It was something that I could have run as an A-B test, which was great because sometimes pricing tests are harder on Shopify. We had like a whole different set of PDPs that we just redirected people to. And um, I was in Mexico at the time on like my winter, you know, journeys around warmer climbs. And uh, I I found the A-B test results. And I'm like, ha, 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 we're going to give this another day. There's absolutely no way these numbers are going to hold, even though we're at statistical significance. It's just barely. We're just going to give it some more data. Close the laptop, go off. Next day, I open it, and the numbers are higher. And I'm like, 
it was 9 a.m. I closed the laptop and I just walked out of my apartment and went to a park and stared at a pond for like a half an hour. <laughs> like, I don't even think I brought my phone with me. I brought my keys and just looked at some ducks. Like, and can you, I, can you share, can you share what major change resulted in the increase or was it a group of changes? The only change was we went from every token costs the same amount of money, like three or four bucks or whatever, to after you buy 10, they go down in price. And after you buy 20, they go down in price even more. That's it. That was the whole change on the store. And we changed some messaging and we changed the buy box. And that was it. We rewrote the business that day. He like the word transformational got trotted out so many times on that client call that it became a joke. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, like I keep getting to once or twice a year, I get a test like that. Yeah. It happens. Now, would that customer come back to you or would they would they just (laughs) use the service, pay for it and run? Uh, They can. You yeah. know, it's happened. Yeah, I, I will. I will say that particular client renewed with me twice. So yeah. you know, he he maintained a degree of loyalty. It really depends on your mindset. You yeah. know, I had a client where um, their Shopify store was a disaster, and it average load time was sixteen seconds. And I'm not a performance optimizing type human, right? But I can cut sixteen seconds. Come on, yeah, like yeah, anybody. Yeah. And so I got it down to like nine, which is still dismal, but not 16, <laughs> right? And conversion rate goes up by, I think, 18%, like overnight. Not not a double thing, but good. And then that gave me the logistic overhead and political capital. I kept working with them for three years. And that was like the first thing I did. I hadn't even run an A-B test yet. That's brilliant. Um, but like, it's, it's a different mindset. Yeah, sometimes people will be like, you made me $8 million dollars. I am loyal to you and want to keep being with draft because that might keep happening. Yeah. Or you made me $8 million. I am moving to my island in the South Pacific and selling the business. Like, I get you. I hear you. No, no, <laughs> I, I, I hear you. Nick, um, before we go, is there anything specific you want to mention? Well, first off, look, always looking for clients. So if you're listening to this and you're a store owner, uh, throw your email address in on the homepage at draft.nu and... Uh, would love to hear from you. Get the ball rolling on that. Um, we're very friendly and nice and would love to work with you. Uh, I'm currently serializing a new book about store design. If you go to draft.nu slash store design, you can buy zines from us and learn about interviews and heat maps and other sundry topics. I'm going to be working on the usability test one probably this afternoon. So. We'll keep rolling those out. And then when I have enough to put together a book, I'll put together a book and you'll like it. Perfect. There it is. Perfect. Listen, uh, Nick, thank you very, very much. And we will place uh, all of the uh, all of those links in our show notes. And uh, I genuinely believe that if you are in any way interested in in design and you're operating within the DTC space, uh, value-based design is absolutely worth reading. Uh, Nick, it has been my absolute pleasure. I waited a long time for it. Thank you very, very much. Thank you so, so much for having me. Really grateful. Thanks for listening. All of our episodes are available on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. 
A special note of appreciation goes to our sponsors, Rewind.io, the leading backup solution for Shopify store owners. Get your first month of Rewind for free by simply responding to any welcome email once you sign up for your free trial on Rewind.io. If you're a Shopify user with an exciting story to tell, reach out to the team on podcast at milkbottlelabs.com. Until the next time, take care.